0: This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Redemption Tempe. Hey, my name is John, and I'm one of your pastors, and it is great to be with you all. Um, As you heard the scripture read, we are diving in to Revelation. And so last Sunday, you heard a great sermon on rest. But I'm telling you, buckle up today, because we're going in a little different direction. Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse today. So, uh, it's a funny thing too. Um, People have found out I'm preaching this, and they're like, you're the right guy for it. And I'm like, should I be concerned about that? I don't know what that means, you know? Unless I look like I'm on the black horse, because I always wear black, I don't know. Um, But hey, before we dive in, uh, we've taken a six-week break because of Advent, and we haven't been in Revelation for a while, and so I want to give us some Revelation reminders, things that we've seen in the book of Revelation so far, and also things that we've heard, and that you've heard us say throughout, and these things are going to be really helpful reminders before we dive into Revelation chapter 6 and 7 today because we're entering into the judgment sections of the book of Revelation. And so, so far, we've gone through Revelation chapters 1 through 5. We've seen this vision of Jesus. We've heard these seven different letters to seven churches. And then in chapters 4 and 5, we saw this throne room scene of Jesus seated on the throne in this cosmic worship service. And what we've heard and what you've heard us say time and time again is that it's important for us to understand the genre of literature that Revelation is. And we've said Revelation is an apocalyptic prophecy in the form of a letter. It's apocalyptic literature. And what we need to know about that is apocalyptic literature is filled with symbolism. What we need to do is let symbols be symbols. What's hard for us is the original audience that received this letter. They were very familiar with apocalyptic literature, but we are not. So it's hard for us. And the second thing that you've heard us say is that revelation is not primarily about predicting the future but it is about making God's people faithful by inspiring allegiance to Jesus in the midst of idolatry. that's important that we remember that. And the third thing that you've heard us say is Revelation is not written to us, but it is absolutely for us. That's important because what that means is that it cannot mean something for us that it didn't mean for them, the original audience that received this letter, because when we read Revelation, we're reading someone else's mail. These are really important reminders. We have to remember this as we enter into these judgment sections because we're gonna see some pretty gnarly stuff and there's some pretty wild images. And if we start trying to make symbols not be symbols, then we start getting into some really troublesome water. And so before we dive into Revelation six, let's pray. We need the spirit of God to illuminate the word and speak to us this morning. Jesus, we're gathered as your people because we want to worship you in this place. We're also gathered because we want to hear from you. You've spoken in the past and you still speak today. And so Jesus, by the power of your spirit, that you would speak to us in this place through revelation. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. We ask that you would move in our midst, amen. So there's gonna be an image on the screen here and uh, it's a piece of art. I know it might be a little hard for some of you in the back, so hey, can we leave that image up there for a couple minutes? Um, This image is by an artist named Albrecht Drewer. It's the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And I want to leave that up there so that you guys can take it in. This image is a depiction of the very section in our passage in Revelation today. This is a depiction of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And what you see up here is... To the far right of the image, you see this guy on a horse with a bow and arrow. Then you see the rider next to him with the sword up who's committing acts of violence. Then you see the biggest figure is in the middle who's the rider who has scales. And then you see in the bottom left corner, you see this skeleton-like figure riding a horse. And then in the very bottom left corner, you see this monster eating people. And then you see a bunch of people being trampled. There's all this crazy violence going on. This is a depiction of our section in Revelation today. My question is, how does this make you feel? If you're anything like me, terrified, right? Like this is crazy. You're thinking, man, that stuff's crazy and it's terrifying and I just hope that I'm not around for that. Whenever that happens, I just hope I'm not here. But what if you are? What would you do? Because these realities from Revelation are not just a future thing, but in the year 81 AD, when Revelation was written, these realities were true. In 536 A.D., known as the worst year in the history of the world, these realities were true. In the year 1498, when Albert Durer created this piece of art, these realities were true. In 2024 today, these realities are true. And these realities have existed in every single generation since the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so rather than being terrified by the images in Revelation, we need to understand these images so we know how to live faithfully today. And so you're gonna want a Bible. The scripture will be on the screen, but we're covering a lot of ground. We're gonna be referring to a lot of different scriptures. And so get out a Bible. If you don't have a physical Bible, get out your Bible app and we're gonna be looking at at some different things today. And so let's dive in here in Revelation chapter six, verses one through eight. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice, like thunder, come. And I looked and behold, a white horse and its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine, and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So how should we understand this chaos? How should we understand the craziness in Revelation chapter six here? What we see is that the world is under judgment. This is the battle that we are in. And what we see here is the opening of the seals. If you don't remember, the seals are just the plans of God. And so these plans of God are being opened and with the first four seals, we see these four horsemen that have fascinated pop culture, several movies, the number of musical artists and bands that have songs and albums based on this, books that have been written based on this. These horsemen, have a symbolic quality, meaning they represent something. It is not predicting a literal linear sequence of events. These things are already happening and will continue to happen until the end. It's the battle that we are in. And so what this means is that you shouldn't go looking and expecting some crazy looking figure to ride a colorful horse down the road and trigger, oh, the end times are happening. You shouldn't expect that. In the same way, John never intended the original audience that received this to go looking for a crazy-looking dude on a multicolored horse or something like that riding down Laodicea or Ephesus. These are not literal descriptions. They're symbols. When we hear that, it's like, oh, that's weird. But then you think about it. We have no problem doing this when it comes to Jesus. The image that we get in Revelation is that he's a lamb, We don't actually think that Jesus is a soft, woolly lamb, do we? No. And so we have to remember this as these seals are opened. Verses 1 and 2, we see the first seal unleashes the white horse and its rider, symbolizing conquest and warfare. And you see that there's a mounted bowman, symbolizing and representing the Parthians of the time, the Parthians were a military threat to Rome. They were located on the east of the Roman Empire and they were the biggest threat to Rome's expansion and they had one common war tactic that Rome did not have. The Parthians had horse riders who had bows and arrows. What this image is doing, taking a common image, a well-known threat to Rome saying, hey, the Parthians and this rider are They are a hindrance, and they're preventing you from expanding. It's reminding Rome of their limits. The white horse challenges the perception of invincibility that was so common in the Roman Empire due to all the Roman propaganda. And today, you experience the white horse today through terrorism. The threat of terrorism that reveals that we are not invincible in America. Verses three and four the next seal is opened, and we see that there's this red horse that is unleashed and its rider, symbolizing violence within your own society. This was challenging what was known as the Pax Romana. You've heard us talk about this, meaning the peace of Rome, that it was believed that that Rome would usher in peace and experience this season of peace that the emperor was responsible for, that the emperor could bring peace. But it actually wasn't peace. It was an illusion of peace, and it came at a cost, the cost of the bloodshed and death of many, many Christians in the empire. But also this peace of Rome didn't last. The second rider on on the red horse is challenging the comfort of an empire that peace can be taken away at any time. And today you experience the red horse when your child comes home from school and you say, how was your day at school? And they tell you that they had an active shooter drill at school, it's the red horse that is riding all over our world today. Violence, the peace that is taken away from the earth. Verses five and six here, we see that the third seal is opened and unleashes the black horse and its rider. And the rider has scales in its hand. This is symbolizing economic hardship and inflation. The scales are representing an exorbitant price for grain. A denarius which is listed here in Revelation is a common laborer's wage and the wage can no longer actually afford grain and food. See, this rider is exposing in Rome the failure of the economic system to provide for its own people. The black horse challenges and confronts the limits of every economic system in the world. And today you experience the black horse. Inflation? Anybody know anything about that? you gone to the grocery store recently? A 20% increase in the cost of groceries in a year. Gas luckily, have come down for a little season, but gas, very, very high as well. You're experiencing the black horse of inflation and economic hardship. Verses seven and eight, the fourth seal is opened. And we see that It's the pale horse whose rider is death, symbolizing the reality that death is coming for everyone through the various means, whether it's violence or famine or sickness here, but everyone's life has an expiration date. Every one of us in the room, we will die. And today, there's not a single person sitting in this room that has not been affected by death, and it rattles you to your core. And it's a reminder that it's coming for you. Well, it doesn't stop there. You guys need a breather? Like I said, I know this is a really light sermon today. We got two more seals still. All right, let's continue. Verse nine. Pick up. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Opening of the fifth seal, what we see here reveals the martyrs, those who have been killed for their faith in Jesus and they're crying out to God. And what we've got to remember is by the time Revelation is written, there's been widespread persecution that has broken out against God's people, against Christians, We heard it, if you remember, back with the letter to the church in Pergamum, Antipas had been killed for his faith. Stephen, the first martyr in the book of Acts, has been killed in Jerusalem. James has been killed in Jerusalem. The churches in Smyrna and Philadelphia that I preached on were under persecution. And Nero, the emperor, has been crucifying followers of Jesus, feeding them to wild animals and burning them alive. The martyrs, the fifth seal, is challenging the perspective of the world. The perspective of the world is, man, your faith in Jesus leads to a loss, so abandon it. Give up on your faith in Jesus for security on earth. But then the fifth seal is open, and the martyrs challenge it and say, no, the faithful on earth who suffer for Jesus, they are the ones who find rest and security in the kingdom to come with Jesus, while the rest of the world that experiences so much security now comes under the judgment of God, and they will be disturbed. And today, you and I know that there are people around the world who are suffering for their faith in Jesus, who are crying out, how long, O Lord, you and I in this room, when we have suffered because of sin and because of injustice and because of oppression in the world, we cry out, How long, O Lord? But yet, the martyrs aren't given an exact answer. They're not given an exact timeline. But here's what we know Revelation gives us the answer because we know when we cry out, How long, O Lord? we're told, Not forever. There is a day coming, not forever, that suffering will cease. The sixth seal is opened in verses 12 and 15. 12 through 15. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth and the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when it's shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones, the generals, the rich, powerful, and everyone, slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountain. The opening of the sixth seal reveals the day of the Lord as the prophets of old predicted. It's the judgment is now intensifying. Prophets like Joel in Joel chapter 2, and Amos chapter 8, and Isaiah chapter 13 said that this day would come, known as the day of the Lord. And what we see here now is there's these cosmic signs that seem very strange. And this is where you get into blood moon stuff, all of that. These cosmic signs are existing to say there's a response that is demanded from every single person in the world. Every single person is going to come under judgment, and that's what these cosmic signs are symbolizing, and here's how we know that. There are seven groups of people listed here, from the kings to the rulers all the way down to the slave and the free, seven groups of people. The number seven is symbolic for something all through the book of Revelation, symbolizing completeness the totality of humanity, the complete humanity will come under the judgment and everybody will be judged for their sin, which is why you see here in verse 15, everyone's hiding. They're running and they're fleeing to the caves because they're hiding because they know that they can't stand under the judgment of God. So these six seals are opened and it's the beginning of the judgment that we're now going to see throughout the next several chapters over the next several weeks. We hear this, and and it begs the question, why do we need to hear this message about judgment? I wonder, have you ever not wanted to go to the doctor out of fear for what they might say? I know for me, this was true a couple years ago. My whole adult life, I've been plagued by sinus issues, ongoing sinus infections, chronic sinus infections. And, and so I was going to see my doctor, and my doctor's like, yo, you are so messed up, we can't help you. You got to go to an allergist and maybe the allergist can help you. I'm like, okay. So I go to the allergist and the allergist is like, man, we tried helping you, but your sinuses are messed up. You got to go to an ENT. So I go to the ENT and I'm dreading going to the ENT. I'm like, man, I don't want to go to the ENT because the last thing that I want to hear, I don't want to be told I got to have sinus surgery because I've known several people who've had sinus surgery and it's terrible. Well, I go to the ENT, they do a bunch of tests and they say, man, man your sinuses are really messed up. (laughs) Uh, you need sinus surgery. I'm like, Oh my gosh. They're like, but you don't just need one. You actually need three different surgeries all at once. We call it the trifecta of sinus surgery. (laughs) Like, man, are you kidding me? Like this is the last thing I want to hear, but I needed to hear it. If healing was going to happen. And as we come to Revelation, and as we hear the judgment in Revelation, it's like going to the doctor, right? We don't, we don't wanna hear about the judgment. But you know what, we actually need to hear it. If the world is ever going to experience healing from sin and all of the evil and all the oppression that exists in the world, we need to hear this. But what are these images trying to do? It's one of the questions we've said that you need to ask when you read Revelation. What are these images trying to do? Which makes us ask the question how should we respond to this? How should we respond to these seals, the six seals that we've just heard? We need to wake up. The response is that we need to wake up. Wake up and allow yourself to be disrupted by these really jarring graphic images. That you need to wake up and allow yourself to be disrupted by the reality that you cannot find comfort or security in any nation, economy, place, person, or in your own health. Waking up is crucial. This is important because it is easy to become complacent and to be lulled to sleep by the idolatry in our society the idols of sex, money, power, politics, consumption, it is easy to all of a sudden drift and fall asleep. And yet these images are meant to jar us and say, wake up, wake up. And it's not just these images, but this is literally the message that we preach through with the seven letters to the seven churches warning, complacent Christians not to compromise their faithfulness to Jesus in the midst of the empire and the beastly powers of the world. And so the first horseman comes and says to you, wake up, your nation isn't invincible. And the second horseman says to you, wake up, your peace can be taken away at any time. And the third horseman says, wake up, economic prosperity and financial security cannot save you. And the fourth horseman says, wake up, death is coming for you. And the fifth seal is opened and says, wake up, be willing to be a martyr. It is worth it to suffer for your faith in Jesus. And the sixth seal is opened and says, wake up. Every single person who falls under these cosmic signs will be judged. Wake up. And you have a decision. Decide. Are you going to follow the way of the world that leads to destruction? Or are you going to follow the way of Jesus that leads to new creation? There's a decision. But if you're anything like me, there's a tension when you read Revelation. And some of you are like, man, that sounds good, but this this stuff is still pretty gnarly. And I don't know how to make sense of God in the midst of it. Like, where is God in all of this? I think that's an honest, valid question that we all have to wrestle with. It's the tension of Revelation. And one of my favorite uh, scholars on the book of Revelation, a biblical scholar, his name is Craig Koester. He answers this question and summarizes the answer this way. It'll be on the screen. It's a little bit long quote. He says, these chapters here in Revelation, they don't explain why there's evil in the world but that there are numerous forces at work in the world. At the same time, the world is the arena where Satan operates and human sin wreaks havoc. And in these visions of violence that we're seeing, it it is created by the beast and its allies. This is important, who are not agents of God, but opponents of God. Instead of offering us an explanation for evil, Revelation 6 is designed to bring repentance and faith by unsettling complacent readers like the letters to the churches in Sardis and Laodicea. What he's saying here is when we come to the judgment and the tension that we feel the judgment of God what we see in Revelation is it functions much like the judgment in Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 32. A couple of places will be on the screen here, like in verse 26, where we see God's judgment on uh, unleashed here in, in these passages. And in this verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. He gave them up. Verse 28, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. God gave them up. And so when we're reading Revelation, it's important that we understand how God's judgment is working. The judgment of God here is where God hands people over and gives them over to what they want to do and says, okay, I'm gonna allow you to experience all of the destructive consequences of your behavior and your sin and what you have chosen to do. But him giving people over is with the hope that people would wake up and turn to Jesus in repentance so that they could be saved and enter into the new creation. It's God giving people up. I don't know if you've ever watched Dr. Phil, whether you like him or not, but when he sits down with someone, he asks everybody the same question. What question does he ask? Anybody know? Yes. He says, how's that working for you? How's that working for you? Because the question enables people to reevaluate their life, to reassess their life because there's actually another way to live that is a better way. And God's judgment is acting like Dr. Phil's question, how's that working for you? I'm giving you what you want, but how's it working for you? Do you wanna continue to follow the way of the world that leads to destruction? Or there's actually a better way to live. You can follow Jesus into new creation. And so these six seals are opened. And after these six seals are opened, if you look at the end of chapter six here, verse 17, people begin crying out. And they ask the most important question in both of these chapters. They say, Who can stand under the judgment of God? Who can stand? Who can stand when God judges sin? And this is the question that all of chapter 7 answers. And so, if you'll turn to chapter 7, we'll pick up in verse 4 here. John says, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. There's 12,000 from each one of the 12 tribes, uh, Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin, and they were sealed. And then in verse nine, John says, after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they were crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen most important question in both of these chapters who can stand in a world under judgment and we're told it is those who've been washed by the blood of Jesus and so six seals are open but we know that there's actually seven seals and so you go to chapter 7 and the narrative it's kind of weird right because you don't see the seventh seal opened instead the first three verses of revelation 7 John sees this vision, and there's these four angels that are holding back four winds. What they're doing is they're holding back the seventh seal of final judgment. And so there's this pause. This is known as an interlude. Chapter seven is an interlude in Revelation. And John now, he begins to hear and see. And what he sees the first thing in verse three, we're told that he sees God's people being sealed on their foreheads. And this sealing is that they belong to God and that they are protected by God. That in the midst of all the chaos that's happening, God's people are protected by him and they belong to him. You think about chaos and destruction. You think about a plane crash. When a a plane goes down and a plane crashes, what is the thing that makes it through the plane crash in the midst of all of the destruction and all of the death? The thing that is left standing, it's a black box. The black box. And God sealing his people on their foreheads is God putting his people in the black box so that they will make it through the judgment and they can stand. So John sees this, but then all of a sudden he hears in verse four, 144,000 people, 144, people are sealed. And we're gonna camp out here for a minute because uh, there's all kinds of interpretations on this and it's led to some really wonky stuff, different belief systems, different cults people like the Davidians or Jehovah's Witness interpret this very literally, right? Um, But it's important that we understand what's going on here. The 144,000, there's 12,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel, okay? And this is not a literal number. Once again, it's symbolic for something. It's symbolic for completeness, the complete people of God. And you got to remember here that Back in chapter five, Jake actually preached this sermon. I don't expect you guys to remember that from like a month and a half ago. But in chapter five, there's this very interesting thing going on that happens here. John heard that the lion of Judah had conquered, but then he looked and he saw a lamb that was slain. He heard something and then he saw something different. We're told in verse four, John hears 144,000, but in verse nine, we're told that he looked and he sees something different. That he sees a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, tribe and tongue. What's happening here is we're getting two different images of the same reality. When John hears this and then sees something else, the 144,000 and the great multitude that no one can number, this is the complete people of God. It's the same group of people, and it is the redeemed. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus, that's what's going on. You see the hearing and seeing, and here's how we know that. Just like the lion and the lamb in chapter five, they enable you to see Christ from two different perspectives, the 144,000 and the great multitude here enable you to see God's people, the church, from two different perspectives. That's what's happening. So John hears this and then he sees, and he sees this great multitude. And in verse nine and 10, he says, there are so many people though, no one can number it. From every nation, tribe, language, and people group, no one can number. And what are they doing? We're told that they're worshiping. They're worshiping God. You know, I think when we hear about judgment, And and gnarly judgment passages like this, I think it can somehow diminish our view of the power of God to save and just how many people God has redeemed and saved. I think we have a small inadequate view of this great multitude. It's kind of like, yeah, I know God's up to some stuff. There's probably gonna be millions of people. Maybe there's billions of people. Maybe there's hundreds of billions, but that's not what John says. He doesn't say millions. He doesn't say billions. He doesn't even say trillions, and it's not because he's not smart enough to say that, but he actually says it's because there are so many people. No one can number the number of people who are worshiping God in this image. No one. Think about that for a moment. Try to take it in and, and even see if you can fathom a countless number of people worshiping Jesus. Where's the loudest place that you've ever been? I know for me, remember it vividly, loudest place I've ever been, 2001. My dad took me to the Diamondbacks World Series game. And we, Warren, cover your ears, we took out the Yankees, and it was amazing. And I know it was a low point for New York fans, but man, I've been an Arizona sports fan my whole life, and it's the pinnacle moment for me, right? (laughs) But it was after 9-11. And back when it was Bank One Ballpark, now Chase Field, that roof was open and there were fighter jets flying over and there were 50,000 people celebrating and screaming. Literally the stadium was shaking and my body was vibrating. That pales in comparison to the worship of Jesus that is going on here. No one can fathom the number. No one can count the number. And it is this number of people that is crying out in worship saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And then the elders join in and they say, and blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. But While this worship service is happening, one of the elders turns to John and says, hey John, who are all these people wearing white robes? Where did they come from? Who are these people who have come out of this great tribulation and suffering? And how did they make it through? We're told here, John says, all of these people are those who have been washed by the blood of Jesus. They are the redeemed people of God. And they're wearing white robes, not because they've lived perfect, holy, sinless life, but they are wearing white robes because they have been washed by the blood of Jesus and they have been rescued from their sin and they have been cleansed and their sins have been removed. See, you read this section about judgment and every one of us is forced to ask the exact same question that all of the people crying out at the end of chapter six ask, who can stand? Who can possibly stand when we see all of this judgment and all of the power of God? And you say, who can possibly stand under this judgment? And yet it's when we ask that question, that we get the answer. The answer, who can possibly stand under the judgment of God in a world under judgment? The answer that we're told here is that you can stand if you've been washed by the blood of Jesus. And what that means, if that's weird language for some of you, being washed by blood, that's, that's creepy, right? That's the language the Bible uses, but maybe that's weird. All that means is if you have surrendered your life to Jesus, meaning given your life to Jesus, you have been washed by the blood of Jesus and you are not just able to stand in a world under judgment, but you are able to stand in the very presence of the living God. And you can stand in the presence of God because your sin has been dealt with and the barrier between you and God has been removed. This is the gospel. This is the beauty of the gospel that if you surrender your life to Jesus, you will be cleansed, meaning you're washed and made clean. You are fully forgiven past, present, and future of everything you have ever done. And what that means is that your life is no longer defined by what you've done or what you do, but your life is defined by what Jesus has done. That is the good news of the gospel. And yet, hearing that, some of you are here this morning, and what I know is that you feel unworthy of being here. Some of you feel dirty because of what you've done or because of the things that have been done to you. And you hear this, and you feel unworthy, and you feel dirty, almost like back away. But the blood of Jesus washes you and makes you white as snow, meaning you are clean. But the blood of Jesus doesn't just cleanse you, we're also told here that it rescues you, that you have been rescued, that you were once a prisoner to sin, that you were enslaved to it, but now you have been freed from sin and all of its effects and Jesus has given you a new life and it is not a life of slavery, but it's a life of freedom. And you're not just rescued, but you're also sealed, that Jesus seals you. And what that means is you belong to God. You are his beloved, and you're not just sealed with a mark on your forehead. You are sealed with the very Holy Spirit of God, who is your guarantee, meaning your salvation is secure. This is the good news for us. Church, you don't need to live in fear of these images You don't need to live in fear of judgment because your sin has been dealt with. You can stand in the presence of God and you can stand in a world where there's chaos and evil today. What I know is that some of you are here and by your own words, you would say, I'm not a Christian. And you're here for a variety of reasons. Some of you, you're skeptical. And you're like, man, I don't, I don't buy this Bible stuff, this Christianity stuff. I don't, even know, I don't even know about this guy, Jesus, and this sermon's crazy. And maybe that's you, and if that's you, we're glad you're here. But there's a reason why you're here this morning, and we believe that God has brought you here. You said yes to the invitation, you stumbled through these doors, whatever it is, you're here for a reason. It's not a coincidence. Others of you, you came here this morning And by your own words, you're not a Christian, but you feel desperate because you're searching for peace and nothing in life is giving it to you. You feel hopeless. You feel at the end of yourself and at the end of your rope. And yet you're here this morning. Others of you, others of you have been coming around for a while. and You've been going through the motions. Maybe you got one foot in, one foot out, but you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus. Wherever you are on that spectrum of people, There's an invitation for you this morning. It's an invitation from Jesus himself. The invitation is surrender. Surrender your life to Jesus. And as a pastor who's preaching this sermon, I don't often do this, but I would implore you. I would implore you to give your life to Jesus today. Let today be the day that you are cleansed and rescued. Let today be the day of your salvation, that there is good news for you. And if that's you, We're gonna have people praying after this. Come up and talk with us and pray with us. We would love to talk with you and pray with you. I'll be over here by the front doors uh, on the side as well. But Revelation six and seven leaves every single one of us with a choice. Surrender to the world and it leads to destruction or surrender to Jesus and make it through judgment into new creation. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word, Lord, even if it's hard to understand at times, but we know that you have spoken, and we know that it is the hope that we have, Lord, that it's the way that you're revealed to us, and we thank you for salvation, Lord, we thank you that that you are a God who is setting the world right. And Lord, that you are a God of justice and love and mercy, and yet Jesus, you have made a a way for every one of us to stand and make it through the judgment because of the blood of Jesus. And so Lord, we are so grateful, but we're indebted to you as your people. We're here to worship you. And so Jesus, I just pray that your spirit would move and speak even right now, Lord, for those who are here, Lord, who haven't surrendered their lives to you, that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, that your spirit would be nudging them and speaking to them. Lord, for all of us who who are here and call ourselves Christians, Jesus, that you would use this sermon, Lord, to give us a sense of comfort and security that we wouldn't have to be afraid of these things. But Jesus, that you would also, Lord, wake us up. Lord, it's easy for every one of us to become complacent and yet let us be jarred by these images. Lord, we wanna be faithful to you. And so Jesus, convict us of ways that we've been unfaithful. Convict us of our sin, Lord. We're so grateful for your love. We're grateful for this church. And Jesus, you are worthy of our worship, amen. So now we move into our time of response and we're gonna respond in in four different ways. We're gonna sing, and I encourage you to sing loudly because Jesus is worthy and it prepares us for that picture of what's coming in Revelation. We also respond by giving. This is a way that we respond to the grace that God has given us. We believe God's given us everything that we have and need. And so we give freely to partner with him and his mission in the world. Just giving boxes uh, on on your way out by the doors. Also, you can give online. We also respond by prayer. If you want prayer, if you have anything going on, you wanna pray for, if you wanna to to come, you wanna surrender your life to Jesus. If you want prayer for sickness or healing, or you just need, Man, someone to cry with, come pray with us. We'd love to pray with you. There'll be men and women on both sides of the stage up here. And lastly, we respond by taking communion. We do this every week because we believe that the gospel is central to all of life and we need Jesus. And so these elements represent Christ's body that was freely given for us. It's the bread and the wine or the juice represents Christ's blood that was shed for us. And so I wanna invite you to participate in responding to God and Come forward and take communion when when you're ready.